is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Sleep. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast presented by the Rambling Runner Podcast Network, where we take an intimate look into the training of eight of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Marathon Trials in Atlanta in February 2020. And this is our last introductory episode, and it is with one of America's best. It is Jared Ward. Jared, recently, in, you know, in April, in Boston, ran sub-210 for the first time. He crushed it, and we talk a lot about that in this episode, but we dive deeper into a lot of subjects. We touch on so many things in this episode, and I can't thank Jared enough for being so open and honest with so many pieces. One thing I do want to mention is very soon uh, he'll be announcing where he'll be racing his marathon in the fall. It didn't come up in this episode in terms of identifying exactly where, as I'm sure you know by now, with so many uh, professionals, they can't release that sort of thing until they get the heads up from whichever marathon they're running. You know, it's just part of the, the natural PR on the marathon side to make sure that, you know, that they have the, a nice rollout and get as much attention for their marathon as possible. So we're not able to talk about that in this episode, but we will definitely touch on it later on in the year. Also, with that said, thank you for the sponsor today, which is Mighty. Mighty is one of the products that I love using on the run, and we'll talk more about it during the ad read in the middle of the episode. But with that being said, here's my conversation with Jared Ward. Hey, Jared, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Matt, so good to be on. It's so good to have you on, and this has been a wild week for everyone who's involved with the uh, the Marathon Olympic Trials and getting ready for the Summer Olympics with the IAAF's announcement and then USATF's release as well regarding the new gold label status for the Marathon Trials on both the men's and women's side. So I guess for you, first things first, what was your initial reaction to the release? Well, this is a win for the sport. I mean, we were we, you know, the conversations with USATF on selection criteria and how they were going to consider putting together an Olympic team was getting more and more complicated as everyone weighed in their opinions on how to ensure we selected a good team and how we did it in a fair way. And, um, and so, so the takeaway number one is that this, uh, this makes things way less complicated. We're going to have a traditional Olympic trial, the top three runners to cross the finish line. Um, get to go play in Tokyo, and so I, I'm appreciated for I'm appreciative for how um, simple the system is now. Now I, you know, I I personally, I guess I I was in a position to to maybe benefit from a um, you know from a selection criteria based on those who have hit their standard prior to the trials. There's there's only two of us, uh, Scott and I, uh, on the men's side in the nation right now that have hit the the Olympic standard. Um, and so I guess, you know, there was maybe an easier route to the Olympics for me, um, with, a with a selection criteria different than the one that we'll have now. But, but ultimately Matt, I really, I really feel like, um, this is a win for the sport and it's a win for, um, for marathoning in America. Yeah. So you got the Olympic standard at Boston this year, which was basically what preceded that was the initial announcement in March regarding um, basically the Olympic trials standard and you know how it could affect um, you know just the top three, which was the the, the previous mechanism, which was basically if you had sub sub two nineteen for men, 
then you could qualify for the Olympics, which basically included everybody who was running in the Olympic trials. So it really wasn't much of a standard uh, with, that, with that being said. So when you first heard the announcement um, last March or in March, how did you react to that news prior to Boston? Well, I just made it, you know, the, the priority was to get, um, to get the standard at Boston. And it, you know, it became, I think, a mission for most athletes looking at a spring marathon um, with the information we had at that point and the, the much steeper Olympic standard. I mean, ultimately, it was the, it was the uh, Olympic Committee deciding they wanted a smaller marathon field. And so their, their standards across the world for, for um, Olympic play in the marathon were a lot looser because they were allowing close to 200 athletes in the field. And they came together and said, hey, we want 80 athletes in the marathon. And the way they decided to do that was to, to tighten up the standard. And so, so all of us just, you know, were saying, okay, I guess we got to go out and get this standard. Um, you know, not, un, not, not unsimilar from how we've had uh, track trials in the U.S. before. I mean, there's, there's been many times where um, we've had three or even fewer athletes at the Olympic trials in a, in a particular track event that have hit the Olympic standard. And it, and it just becomes um, at that point, either a game of, of finishing among the top three of those that have the standard or just getting across the finish line. If there's only one or two or three people that have the Olympic standard. And, um, and so that's kind of how I viewed the, the marathon trials being this race that has, you know, 150 guys that have qualified in or 200, but there's only a handful that have the standard and it becomes a race of top three that have the standard. And so I think that's how most of us viewed it. We just were, we're on a mission between a spring marathon and potentially a fall marathon to go get our Olympic standard. And, um, and then, you know, this, this announcement changes it. The, the Olympics is going to, uh, accept a, a top five finish at the Olympic trials as the equivalent of the standard. And so now we're in a place where, um, you know, an athlete doesn't have to have the standard going in. We can just uh, go to the Olympic trials and compete. And it's, and it, you know, it really kind of preserves that American dream um, associated with the Olympics of, I just have to have that one magical day at the Olympic trials and I can make the Olympic team. And I, and so I think we'll have a lot more athletes on the start line of the Olympic trials um, feeling uh, sincerely hopeful about their chances. And that, that makes for an exciting event. Yeah. And one of the things I talked with Parker about, and we just released an episode today, which was like our emergency pod regarding this topic was just how it kind of, it really makes his training, um, a little bit less, I guess, just, it feels like now prior to that announcement, Every day and every week felt so important because it was all leading up to the fall, which was so connected to uh, next winter. Whereas now it's like if you need to take a week off from training to get right or get get healthy, it doesn't have this huge potential domino effect where it did, you know, just, you know, just two weeks ago, you had people making, you know, uh, decisions on their training and on their health which, you know, while the Olympic trials were so far away, it felt like everything was so critical all the time. Sure. I mean, it essentially made um, for, for an individual athlete, they have two Olympic trial events. They have their fall marathon in which they need to achieve the standard. And then they have the Olympic trial in next, next February in which they need to qualify for the team. And, and you're right. That is, a, that is a lot of pressure. It's pressure for a full year, even before we're, we're on the uh, doorstep of the Olympics. And I think, um, it, you know, it could result in, in athletes, 
um, being cooked by the time they get to the Olympics because they've been, they've been, um, you know, they've been at such high pressure and, and running on such a fine line for a whole year just to try to get there. And so I, I do think it's, it's a win in that everyone can just focus at the Olympic trials. And if you can get ready for the Olympic trial and put to a good, put a good race there, then, then you can shift your focus to the Olympics. And I, I, I think it's, uh, in general, it's a better, it's a better situation. So let's go back in time a little bit to, you know, March of this year, they make that original announcement. So you're getting ready for Boston and you didn't run Boston the previous year with you had like the gale force winds and all the rain and everyone knows about Boston 2018. So when you're getting ready for Boston this year, how much weather acclimation type work did you try to do or try to incorporate in your training to get ready for the myriad of potential outcomes um, that could happen on race day? Well, Boston's the uh, Boston's an interesting uh, an interesting race, especially as it relates to weather. Because, frankly, the uh, the average weather in Boston on the third Monday in April is pretty perfect. Uh, but there's just a there's a significant uh, standard deviation or expected variance from that. And so, um, we're uh, yeah, you don't know what you're getting ready for. And um, and so I you know I want to be prepared for the heat. Um, but I also, uh, I also want to be, um, you know, training when you prepare for heat, you, you take a little bit of a, um, of a hit in terms of just your, uh, you know, your cardio training in general, because when you train for the heat, you're training in the heat and you can't train quite as hard or quite as long because your body's running out of water. And so, yeah, you're, you're trying to strike a balance and, um, and really my approach and, you know, when I'll go into Coach Eyestone and I'll say, hey, this is this is what we're looking at. How do we get ready for this? Coach Eyestone will say, well, Jared, just get really, really fit and you'll be fine. And um, so Coach Eyestone's method is just to get just to get really, really fit. And, and that's kind of what I lean towards. I say, well, you know, we can try to predict or plan for certain weather conditions, but ultimately uh, we just try to get really, really fit. And then, you know, as, as we get closer to the race, I, I certainly am. And following the weather forecast, uh, trying to see if there's, um, if there's anything, you know, two weeks out that we can tell what's going on or even a week out because it doesn't take that long for your body to, uh, to acclimate, um, in terms of being prepared to run in the heat. And that's really the bigger aspect. If it's going to be cold, well, you just, uh, you figure out how to wear more clothes and you pack more clothes to the starting line and you, and you bring, but it's the, it's the heat training that really, um, really is the bigger, uh, kind of question mark. And as we got closer and closer and I was watching the weather and trying to figure out if it was going to be hot, um, I was prepared to in that last week or two, uh, do a couple of things just to get my body a little bit more prepared for the heat. You know, you just, you, you run in a sweatshirt or with full sweats on and, and you sweat and you lose water and you create your own little humid environment. And, uh, and it only takes your body seven days before it's making more plasma and you're carrying a little bit more water. And so, um, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm watching the weather and trying to see if I need to acclimate in that way. And, and I really didn't see anything that looked too warm um, going in. And so I didn't really worry about it. And we just, we went into it and the weather ended up being fine. It was maybe a little bit warm and a little bit humid um, it, it, compared to maybe what I would say optimal was, but really for Boston, it was, it was a fine day. Yeah. And it really was fine for the people who went out early that day. It seemed like right around yes. noon, one o'clock, 
things started to change pretty quick in terms of the heat and humidity. But for most of the people who went out in wave one and wave two, like you're right, it was you know, maybe a little warmer than expected, but nothing that was going to really change anybody's race. Yeah, I think you're right. And you're good to point that out too. I mean, it did, it did warm up as the day went on. And as the, uh, as the, I think, you know, we had a little bit more cloud cover in the morning as that rain, the, the heavy rain from the morning was still, um, kind of blowing off of us. And so it, it was, it certainly was more optimal conditions for those running, uh, closer to 10 o'clock than for those running much later in the afternoon. So you just mentioned before that, once that uh, announcement had happened in March, that the goal in Boston became, you know, basically getting sub to eleven thirty, just to ensure your spot with the Olympic standard. And as that race progressed, you guys had a huge group of people you were running with. So let's just talk about strategy pre-race. What were some of the things that you and your coach thought about in terms of ensuring that you would be able to run your best possible time, not only in terms of you know, how fast you should be running per mile, but what kind of company and group that you were hoping to stay with uh, during the course of the race? Well, you know, funny thing about marathon training, I guess, um, after you do a few marathons, um, you really know what you're prepared for going into the race. And, uh, and so, you know, as I've put together some weeks of training going into Boston, I knew I was ready for under reasonable conditions uh, about a 209 marathon. And so, um, when coach and I go into it, we're certainly competing and, um, and we're trying to finish as high as we can, but we're also just, uh, trying to put together a race plan that's going to get me to the finish line as fast as possible. And so, um, it's, it's run with the pack and it's relaxed and it's find a rhythm and it's take advantage of the hills early on in the race without going too fast down the hills early on in the race to, uh, to save your legs for later in the race. And it's, uh, it's doing, um, volume doing, uh, you know, marathon pace or a little faster than marathon pace intervals going on slight, slight inclines, uh, throughout training. And so when I showed up on the start line, um, ultimately I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to run this, uh, this pace to try to get me to a sub 210 marathon. And, uh, and I'm hoping that I'm going to have company out there around the pace that I want to be at and we're, and we're going to, um, run for this time and, and then see how high, um, I can finish and hopefully get competitive at the end. And, um, and that's what it was. And that, and that's, you know, I, I, uh, I ended up jumping up to the front of the, of the pack at about 10 miles into the race and taking the lead. And, uh, and, you know, my wife's at home or at, at the hotel watching the race thinking, Oh no, Jared's taking the lead. And, you know, <laughs> you know, she's, she's thinking of those times that we've watched the tour de France and knowing what happens when someone goes up there and, you know, tries to pull away from the Peloton. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, these guys, these guys are fast guys that are amazing. It's, I, think, I think I was seated 24th in the race by time. And so, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, I'm on the, uh, that I, that I had some sort of, um, some sort of marathon, you know, personal best that said, Hey, I should be leading this race. But, but what happened was the pace slowed a little bit at about mile 10. And we went from running on pace for 208 or 209 marathon to running more like a 212 or 213 pace. And I thought, if we do this for a few miles, it's going to close the door on my opportunity to run this sub 210 marathon time that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I wasn't willing to throw it away. And, and so I went up there to try to get back to our, our 209 pace and nobody went with me. 
And I thought, well, if you guys want to let me win the race, I'm happy to do that too. But, but ultimately I'm going out to just keep this pace where it's at. And, and so that put me in the front of the pack for uh, a couple miles or so before they ended up, you know, uh, getting back into rhythm and, and catching back up to me. And then we ran together for another number of miles in that pack. But, but it really, um, I don't know, kind of maybe illustrates the, the mentality coach and I have going into some of these races and a lot of times it is just relax and sit on the leaders and and see how high we can finish but in Boston there was there was very much a time goal that was involved there. Now I'm really glad you brought that up because I remember distinctly watching the Boston Marathon a few years ago not the year she won it but you know it was with Des Linden and she was with the main the main group of women I think it was like three or four people and it looked as if, and it was being described on TV as if she was losing contact with the leaders and then coming and then fighting her way back. But then after the fact, you realize, no, she just kept running the same pace. It was some of the leaders that kept spurting forward and then coming back. And you kind of lose that sense of relativism when you watch it on TV. You don't know exactly what's happening. You just see how people are moving within the group. Well, yeah, and and Desi's like, queen of uh of pacing um in marathons and so you know it comes after you watch a few of them then um then you begin to trust uh what des linden is doing in terms of equal pacing more than anything else you're seeing or hearing on tv you think oh this is running the same pace and they're moving around her that's exactly right all right so you made the the tour de france comparison before so i'm going to go with it as well when you're running in a big group like that How do you, um, especially if you're running pretty close to your desired pace, where do you like to run within the group? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough question. And, and, you know, you find that sometimes when you're in these groups, um, you're watching other people around you and you think, Hey man, can you decide where you want to run? Because, you know, everyone, everyone wants to be, you know, in, you know, one to two people back from the lead kind of right behind the leaders. They want to be on the inside of the tangent, but they also don't want to be boxed in. It's like everybody wants to be in the same place in that pack and you have to choose. You have to say, well, I'm going to be in there and it's going to be a little bit tight and I'm not going to be able to move exactly how I um, want to or get out exactly when I want to. Um, Or you have to say, well, I'm willing to run up in the front next to the leaders or I'm willing to run in the back. And so, you know, it's it's kind of just a bifield thing. but it is interesting to watch uh, to watch runners in that pack jump around. I remember, you know, when I think of running in the pack at desired pace, I really think back to to Rio and uh, and the Olympic race there because that was the first time in my life that I'd run five minute pace, which was which was about the pace that I was ready for at that marathon in a pack of like fifty guys. You know, I'd run I'd run five minute pace in other marathons, um, but never with all of the top, those top runners in the world, right? You know, you, you go and you run it at, um, in any of these other major marathons and, and you have fantastic runners that are able to go the, the, the same pace or faster paces, but, but never that many. And at the Olympics, you just get this dense field. And I remember thinking, you know, two miles into this race, I was running in a pack of 50 guys and I felt like I was flying and we, we were, we were going the, exactly the pace that I wanted. Um, but it was interesting as we'd go around a, cor- cur- a curve and the whole pack was kind of bungee, you know, like a bungee cord, and then it would slap back together. And we'd go around another bend and it would string out and we'd slap back together. And, 
Nobody wants to be trapped on the inside, and nobody wants to be pinched on the corner on the inside as you go around. And so there's a lot of movement, a lot of jockeying. Um, it is it is kind of an interesting feeling to be. You, know, you feel like you're in the middle of a stampede. You're all running fast, and and people are moving all over the place. Yeah, and I can't wait to touch on that again later in the year when we start talking about the Atlanta course, which has plenty of turns. Yeah, lots of turns, lots of ups and downs, and so you know you're gonna have you're gonna have hill runners that. Um, that like to keep the rhythm and the pace going up. You know, thinking of runners like like uh, Tyler Pinnell and some of these, you know, these these runners that train in Colorado, Boulder runners, and then you got downhill runners that are like your your track rhythm runners or your you know the, these downhill marathoners that are going to be wanting to go faster on the downhill. And then you mix that in with all these turns. There's no rhythm on that Atlanta course, and so it is. It's going to be. It's going to be this crazy pack of everybody that has different strengths, um, uphill, downhill, round turns. And it, it is, it's going to be an interesting pack. No, I, I love the idea of like you tucked in at Rio, almost like the, uh, the breaking two flying V for Elliot Kipchoge. Yes. Just <laughs> like, just sitting right in there. Um, so when you're, when you're doing the mental, you know, kind of the mental gymnastics and trying to figure out exactly where you fit in the field, do you reach a point? like a breaking point of like, all right, I can only spend so much mental energy on this because obviously the more mental energy you spend on that, you know, all your systems are connected. Like eventually if you stress out too much, it's going to affect your running. So is there, is, do you try to find a happy medium where you're, you're thinking about things, but you're not overthinking it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, in a marathon, I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can to not, flip the competitive racing switch until miles after halfway. Um, because you're totally right. If you're, if you're on the start line, ready, ready for war and you know, the gun goes off and you take off and you're competing right from the gun, you're going to be fried by the end of that marathon. And so it is, it's a game of, of maintaining contact and, and seeing what's going on. But it's also a, a game of at the beginning of the marathon, chill, you know, keep up on your hydration and on your fueling and on things like that. So that when you get to the racing point of the, of the race, uh, you, you haven't cooked yourself. So you're right. It, it, it's a balance game and you, you got to maintain contact and you got to know what's going on, but you're also trying to, um, you're trying to do all that while not racing for the first half. If you're listening to this podcast, then you are a big fan of audio, as am I, which is why I'm so excited to have this new sponsor, which is called Mighty. Mighty is, well, it, frankly, it looks like your old iPod shuffle. If you're, if you're old like me, I should say, you know what the iPod shuffle looks like. It's a little square piece, and Mighty is just like that. So Mighty is the first ever Spotify music player that works without a phone screen or internet or internet connection I should say enjoy your workouts runs hikes and commutes without the distractions of your smartphone mighty is smaller than a box of matches works with bluetooth and wired headphones and has more than five hours of playback and holds over a thousand songs so i love these things because it you know they're so light they can just clip on to your clothing or on your waistband which is where i put it I like to use it with uh, Bluetooth headphones. That way, I'm just it's just so free and easy. But you can use wired headphones as well. I like my Aftershocks, um, which I've talked about before in this podcast. Uh, in you know, basically syncing it with my Mighty device. It works through Spotify. Getting Spotify Premium is also a great way of using it. And Spotify is also in the podcast game, so you can listen to this podcast via. 
Mighty on Spotify, and you're going to love it. And also, if you go to BeMighty.com, that's the word B, B-E, Mighty.com, you can save 10% on the original $79 price of these devices. They are such a good deal. They're a huge bargain, and you're going to love them. I know that because I love mine. So go to BeMighty.com and use code RAMBLING at checkout to save 10%. So obviously Rio went really well for you. It was, you know, a significant, if not the highlight moment of your career at that point, or even maybe even later. And certainly, hopefully, we'll, we'll, you know, eclipse that in the future. But as you reflect on your preparation for the Olympic trials and Rio in 2016, what have you learned from that experience? And what have you been able to kind of, you know, kind of spin forward and, you know, look at your upcoming training to maximize, you know, what you're able to do now while also learning from what you've seen in the past? Uh, yeah, that's a, you know, that's an interesting question. And, and I have learned some things. I mean, when I went into the last Olympic trials, it was my fourth marathon, which, which isn't uncommon um, in the, in the elite marathoning world. You know, we, we only run one or two a year. And so you can be a, a relatively seasoned marathoner if you have a half dozen or more marathons, um, under your belt. But I, I really felt like at that, um, that Olympic trial in 2016, that I was a new marathoner and I, I was training more like a, a college athlete, um, both in terms of, of mentality and in terms of beating on my body. And, you know, I would just go out and, and I would hammer these long runs and these workouts pretty hard and, um, and just count on my body's ability to recover from them. And, and, and I ran a a final Olympic trial. Um, but then I think I, I wanted to jump back into it too quick as I wanted to start preparing for Rio. And so I think I was a little, a little quick to get back to racing. And, you know, I, I ran at the, the world half marathon championships uh, about six weeks after uh, the Olympic trial, and that was a team I had committed to even before I had made the Olympic team. I, you know, I, I'd never run on a world team before, and and uh, so I had a quick turnaround getting ready for that, and then a few other races, and then we really started into the the training cycle for Rio, and and it ended up working out. You know, I I ended up putting together the best race of my life, and and I was very very fit in Rio, but I was injured, and um and I you know that injury started coming on probably weeks, I mean, at least a month out of Rio. And I I would say thinking back on it, I was starting to feel some of the things even two or three months ahead of Rio. Um, But I just kept hammering. And, uh, and I think, you know, I was maybe just barely young enough that my body could keep up with it. And, and I ended up racing Rio on a, 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 fractured pelvis. And I, I didn't know it at the time exactly what was going on. I knew there was pain in there, but I knew I was going to run at Rio regardless of what was going on in my pelvis. And so I, I just tended to continue to ignore it as much as I could. Um, and the, the training staff at, at the Olympics was fantastic and, and they took good care of me, um, getting me to that start line. But the result of that was the next two years of, of my running life kind of a, on a roller coaster of recovering from that injury and other injuries related to those injuries. And, and I think what I learned this last year, um, you know, I, I ran the New York marathon, uh, in fall of 2018 and I pulled a hamstring in September and I'd taken weeks off and, and I really, I went into the New York marathon with about six weeks of healthy training under me. And in fact, I'd even called up the race director, 
or the elite coordinator there and said, Hey, I just, I just don't think I'll be a hundred percent. I don't think I'll be ready to race. And David Monty out there in New York just encouraged me to come anyways. And he said, Jared, if you can get out there and you can even just run halfway and give it a try, I'd encourage you to come. And if, and if you need to pull the plug at halfway, we're supportive of that. Um, and he just said, but we've had a lot of runners that have come out feeling like they weren't quite ready for the race and they perform very well. And so I thought, okay, you know, David's taken all the pressure off of New York. I'm going to go run and we'll see what happens. And it ended up work. It ended up going very well. I finished sixth, um, and, and moved up through the late stages of the race. And, um, and I had a great race there and I thought, man, that was weird. I, I really didn't have great training going in. I'd taken almost all of September off on this pulled hamstring and, and I'd been a little bit more patient in October with my training. And I thought, wow, you know, that seemed magical. And then we, we roll around to Boston and I, I thought, okay, I've been on and off injured for, for two years now with the exception of a few weeks before New York, I'm just going to be patient. And I was really patient with my Boston training. And I found that towards the end of training, things started to float along. Um, my, my pace work, my marathon pace work was going fine. Um, I'd paid more attention to the small details in terms of keeping myself healthy and spending a little extra time in the weight room, in the training room, doing maintenance. And, and I found, you know, that Boston went really well. And, and, and so I think what I've learned is that whereas on this last Olympic cycle, I was really just, um, you know, throwing my shoulder into the brick wall and pushing as hard as I could. And I was fortunate that I made it through all of that, um, you know, and made it to a good Olympic race without being totally broken. And I think maybe I was just barely young enough to do that. And now I'm a few years older and, and, and that certainly, I, I just don't think that I can handle that kind of um, beating on my body, but also maybe a few years wiser in, in recognizing that I think being healthy is a huge aspect of uh, a huge component to success and certainly in, in terms of long-term success. And so my approach this year is just going to be more patient. It's going to be to stay healthy and, um, and to, to get to the starting line healthy and, um, and to maybe give myself, you know, if, if things go well at the Olympic trials, I'll give myself a little bit more time, um, it, more time to recover right after the Olympic trials before really starting that block into Tokyo. And, um, and I hope that that patience plays off. And do you think part of the reason that you were able to perform so well at New York this year was simply by having, you know, years and years of marathon training already under your belt and that that, that training doesn't necessarily leave you as opposed to being an inexperienced marathoner with, with little training? Sure. I think there's certainly truth to that. I think there's, you know, Dathan Ritzenhein will talk about lifetime fitness. And I, I think you know, the, the longer you've been running and the more marathons you've been running, you kind of, you, you feel this bucket of uh, lifetime fitness and then you can draw on that. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you doing now, um, you know, more proactively in the PT and strength realm that maybe you weren't doing, you know, three or four years ago? Well, I'm doing a lot more to keep, uh, to keep my hamstrings stronger. And so, you know, after this pelvis injury, um, I lost a lot of core strength. And I think, uh, I think I, you know, I wasn't running in as good of a posture. And then I started pulling my hamstring and I had two, two hamstring pulls in, in 2018. And, um, and so what started as a, okay, I got to get my hips back under me. Let's strengthen my core and let's uh, get my hamstrings back healthy again and strong again, turned into this, um, this realization that I really did need to spend a little bit more time doing some specific core strength that keep my hips under me. So I'm doing, I'm doing exercises 
um, you know, planks and things like that, where I'm extending arms out in front of me or lifting legs or moving around, or I'm doing more dead bug exercises, um, where I'm, I'm really trying to keep my pelvis and my belly button as tight together as I can like that. You, you know, you think that good, that running form where your, your pelvis is tucked right under your body. And, um, and so I'm doing core work that, that tries to, uh, force that type of, um, of behavior when I'm running and then also spending more time on my hamstrings. I do stuff like Russian leans or Nordic curls where you're, you, you know, someone's holding your heels and you just slowly, um, lower the rest of your body from your knee to your head, like a board to the ground, using your hamstrings and your glutes to slow your body down. Um, and things like that, where I'm, I'm trying to keep my hamstrings strong enough to where, um, they work better and, and they don't pull on me. And I think stronger hamstrings also helps with, you know, knee pain because you, you force your, um, your body to, to, you know, have a foot strike in a more healthy position and things like that. And so, so it's, you know, it's been things like that and, and taking more time, uh, you know, with a massage therapist. So my wife is a massage therapist and she, she works on me and she's, she's fantastic. Oh, so you have no excuse, Jared. You have no excuse. I know, from the right? Yeah, if, anyone, if anyone wants, if anyone <laughs> wants a piece of advice, it's marry a massage therapist or marry someone who's willing to go to massage school after you marry him. It's, it's a fantastic life. Um, but she does, she takes care of me, but we have four kids now. And so if, uh, if, if I want her to work on me or if, even if she wants to work on me, it takes a little bit more of a proactive approach in, in having someone to watch our kids or timing it when our kids are asleep or things like that. Um, and so I've become, uh, we've become a little bit more assertive with how we organize that time. And also I've become a little bit more willing to say, okay, I'm going to go see another massage therapist today because I can, I can leave home and she can be with the kids and I can go see another person. And I found another, um, another therapist, uh, that, that works really well for me. And, um, and, you know, and I have the, I have the BYU training room and I, I spend a little bit more time in there and have talked to more and more trainers and more and more strength and conditioning coaches and done more assessments and, and just tried to have a, a much more proactive approach on, on what I'm doing to keep myself healthy. And, you know, in terms of trying to find the proper running stride, this is obviously, you know, something that's unique to every, to every body. Not I mean like every person, but literally each body is different. So finding the perfect stride or the best possible stride for every specific body is such an individualized thing. What sort of processes do you use to ensure that you're kind of narrowing the gap between where you are and where you need to be? And how do you identify, you know, the stride that you think is going to potentially be ideal for you? Well, you know, and that's a, that's a, a loaded question because there's so many people who look at stride differently out there. Um, and, and, and there's probably merit to, to a lot of the different approaches and the things that people are doing. But, you know, I think one thing, one thing that I do think we, we really know, um, I mean, in terms of, in terms of repeated research is that our bodies do a really good job at when, you know, if anyone's just to go out there and run your body does a good job at finding the most efficient gait for your current state. So you go out and run and you say, oh man, I don't like how I look. I'm going to try to take more steps or I'm going to try to shorten my stride or I'm going to try to land on my toe instead of my heel or whatever you're saying is that on the margin, on that change, you're going to become less efficient, at least for a time. And so the trick is, okay, if, if, if I'm running at my most for my current state, what kind of things do I need to do that will change my current state to a to a, a place where I will have a more efficient running form? And that's tricky because there's so many moving parts. 
Um, but you know, here's here's my two cents on nutrition or on not nutrition on on stride um, on stride uh, and mechanics and things like that. The first is um, don't do anything drastic in terms of changing your form. Um, unless there's something that's drastically wrong, unless there's a, a massive asymmetry or something like that. But then I think there's also merit to saying, okay, what types of exercises can I do that are going to put my body into a good running posture? And, and most of us runners become quite quad dominant. And so I think adding some strength to your hamstrings, maybe doing some squats or some lunges or some hamstring curls or things like that, where you get your hamstrings a little stronger is going to naturally give your body a little bit more balance. And it's going to change your running form, but it's going to do it naturally. It's not going to be a forced thing. It's going to be something that naturally happens because you strengthen something that was maybe, um, maybe out of balance. And so I'd say doing things like exercises where you keep your hips under you, exercises where you, you, you strengthen your, your obliques on the side you know, the sides of your body. So we're talking side planks and things like that. And then doing things where you're exercising, you know, you're strengthening your hamstrings and a lot of these good form, full body exercises. I'm totally on board with Olympic lifts and with squats and lunges and things like that. And if you can, you know, if you can be careful enough about your approach where you're, you know, watch some good YouTube videos and identify some people that look like they're doing it right and, and really try to, to, um, to make yourself look like that good running form in the weight room, um, in terms of your, your exercises, I think translates to a better running form out on the street. So I, I take, I tend to take that approach over a, um, oh, you're, you know, you're landing weird. Let's, uh, focus on landing a little bit different. I think, well, let's, let's fix the problems with our strength inadequacies and in the weight room and, and the running will fix itself. So what are you hoping to improve on this summer and fall and how is that connected to your running schedule? So, um, you know, this spring I spent a little time, um, working my speed again. It had been a long time since I really had a speed season. And so after Boston, I started running with the BYU guys on the track and, and they're running fantastic this year. Um, and so I, you know, I started jumping in some track workouts with them and, and trying to get that speed back. And so now I think I transitioned back into that strength and endurance and I want to become a little bit better of an uphill runner. I'm, I'm a pretty good downhill runner. Um, and I want to spend a little bit more time running uphill and, and getting strong for, for both, you know, what the Olympic trials is going to feature and, and, you know, potentially what, uh, what Tokyo is going to feature. And so I want to become a better uphill runner. Um, I also just want to focus on, um, keeping myself healthy. And so, you know, I've been experimenting with different things I can do in the weight room, um, different, different types of lifting. You know, lately I've been doing squats, um, with a, you know, a very slow eccentric, uh, portion. So I'm going down slow. I give myself a little pause right at the bottom and then I try to explode out of it. And, um, and that has, uh, has worked for me in terms of, um, just, just strengthening my hips and keeping my hips under me. And, um, and so I'm going to spend a little bit more attention to detail on that kind of stuff. And on core, you know, I haven't really emphasized core since high school. I always thought, well, when you run, you use a lot of core. And so I don't need to, I don't need to finish a run and do a bunch of crunches. And, and, um, and, and while I agree with that in terms of, I don't, I don't know that crunches or sit-ups are exactly what we need. I, I have felt um, as I've gotten older and as I've recovered from some of these injuries, that core is important. And so it's going to be a patient approach of making sure I'm, I'm putting my time in, in the weight room, keeping myself healthy and doing some core and then working back on that strength and that hill running to try to get ready for what's coming. Nice. So what races do you think you'll be doing? 
Oh man. Um, you know, I'm, I'm running a half marathon in, um, Northern England, the great North run in September. And I'm pretty excited about that. I, I think, uh, I think I can be ready for a great half marathon. Um, come that timeline. I just, I just ran a 10 K in Salt Lake yesterday. Um, and it was a downhill 10 K. Um, but I surprised myself running, uh, in the 28 twenties for it and, um, and, and feel good about where I am speed wise. And I think that'll transition really well into a half marathon in September. Um, and then I, I am looking at, uh, at a fall marathon. And so, um, you know, we'll have to decide exactly how things go after this half and, and if that's exactly what we need. But I thought, you know, I kind of want one more marathon just to just to experiment with a few more things before I get to the trials. Uh, you know, I've been trying um, new nutrition uh, with this Martin drink and um, and with this new philosophy on being a little bit more relaxed in training. I feel like I've only had one cycle going through Boston to experiment with that. And so I, I'd like another marathon to say, okay. Um, can I try one more time with this patient approach? Um, and I feel like I recover from those a little bit better too. And so I, I'm not really worried about recovery time before the trial. So I think I'll look at a fall marathon. Um, and then really after that, it'll just be get recovered from that and, uh, and get training into the trials. How exciting. All right. Fall marathon. So you, will you be making a decision not only on whether you will or will not be doing it, but where after the great North run, or have you already kind of decided if you're going to do one, where it will be? You know, yeah, we, we are, we are going to decide here in the next, uh, you know, in the next little bit, whether that's going to fit or not. And I want to see how a little bit of training, um, goes up towards that great North run. But then, yeah, I, I expect that we'll decide, um, if I'm going to run one within the coming weeks and then that, then it, it won't be long to decide where. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to have that conversation, Jared. Thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with your summer training. Hey, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jared, once again for coming on the show. Also, thank you to our sponsor for today's show, Mighty. I love this product. I really do. It's so affordable. You know, I think one of the, the great questions that I like on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast, which is, you know, known the world over and one of the most famous ones out there is what item of $100 or less has made the biggest impact on you. I think this is that kind of product. I really like it. And I just don't like running I don't like running being weighed down by things. It's one of the reasons why I hate running with a water bottle. I just like being able to run without my phone whenever possible. And Mighty makes that available to me even when I want to run with music. So lastly, I want to give people a heads up. If you're listening to this, you might also be aware of my other podcast, the Rambling Runner podcast. We've had people on that show who are also in the OTQ business. And one that I think you'll like if you like these episodes is my recent episode, which was last month with Molly Bookmeyer. She has, has an incredible story. Not only is she super fast, because, hey, if you get an OTQ, you're super fast, but she just has overcome so much and she's striving for so much more. So give that a look. Molly Bookmeyer, thank you so much for listening, for rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution.